It is great to be here this morning. Um, I, I will say, uh, I actually changed the name of my sermon since I changed the sign, um, but I didn't get a chance to go rechange the sign, so the sign has a different, it do, doesn't matter. Anyway, the new ter- sermon title is When Work Doesn't Work, okay? Thought it was fun, catchy, memorable. Uh, anyway, for those of you that may not know me, uh, my name is Jeff, uh, my beautiful wife Jessica up there in the sound booth. Uh, we are the youth pastors here at Grace. And um, I get to bring the message every once in a while. Um, And we have a little adorable girl that thinks she owns this church. Her name is London, and she is just about to turn three. And yes, she she is a blessing. Uh, How many like parents, grandparents, do we have in here? We have. Okay. All right. Awesome. So I'm I'm speaking to my people now because when I tell like dad stories, the kids don't get it. All right. So. We, we kind of know as parents, and I just want you guys to know as parents and as grandparents that while working with youth, I can really see the impact that the, the parents and the family, the close family that's pouring into them, what kind of impact they are having. So even when it seems like they're just stuck in their phones and not listening, they are. They're actually hearing you. And, and so they are paying attention. I just want to leave you with that encouragement. Now, we are, <laughs> I just want you to, yeah, in case you're wondering, they, they do hear, they do, even though they seem like they're ignoring you. That's the cool thing to do. Um, for us, we're raising a toddler. We don't expect it'll get any worse, right? You guys can reassure us of that, right? <laughs> yeah. We are raising a, a toddler who thinks she owns the world, okay? I'm pretty sure she does. Um, but I, I, as I was writing this message, it reminded me of our London's first like Christmas where she could interact with things um, and the way she way her birthday falls is her first Christmas she was a few months old so eh, she didn't really get it her next Christmas she was about a year and a half so we were really excited that she was going to actually be able to you know open her own presents that she's going to see her new toy and just be so excited and just be jolly I remember we spent like weeks shopping I mean we didn't buy like big expensive things but we bought a lot of things and we spent all this time shopping, picking out the perfect gifts, picking out the perfect toy and the, the clothes, which she really didn't care about those, but picking out the, the perfect things for her. And then we were so shocked when Christmas morning came around and her biggest fascination was the wrapping paper. She, uh, she was so like polite with it though. She would peel off like an inch long strip and then she would hand it to you and then she'd peel off another inch long strip and hand it. It took us about 22 minutes each present. But she was so fascinated with pulling off the little pieces of wrapping paper that she completely ignored the present itself. That as soon as this one was done and there was no more wrapping paper, she had moved on to the next. And then to the next, and to the next. And, and as I was thinking about that, we oftentimes get so focused on the details of things that we often miss the big picture, right? I, I know we're planning a third birthday coming up, and I know at least the last two, we get so fixated on the details of the party that we almost forget that it's in celebration of her birth, right? That so often in life we get so addicted to the details that we miss the big picture. Take, for instance, if you had your your favorite painter. Uh, If you don't have a favorite painter, let's just go with Da Vinci. Everyone knows him. And he was painting maybe The Last Supper. Now imagine you got the opportunity to witness Da Vinci painting this Last Supper, but imagine you got so fixated on the paintbrush, 
that the way that he, he dipped it in this color palette that you could tell was going to be leading to a masterpiece, and the way that he elegantly pushed it across the canvas, and the, the colors mixed together, and you just became so fascinated with the way the paintbrush moved that you never stepped back to see the whole picture. Then what you've done is you've been entertained, yes, but you've not got the message the artist was trying to communicate. While studying Romans 9, which is what we're going to be talking about today, I found this to be the case a lot, that so many people got so fixated on the details and the theological arguments that they missed the big picture that Paul was trying to paint. That there is, within Romans 9, there are certain doctrinal arguments that people love to argue about. And I listened to so many sermons, read so many commentaries that that's all they focused on when Paul was painting a much broader picture than that. So my, my goal today is to not get into the theological debates. I think we can go home and research that on our own. I want to focus on what Paul is actually saying to this first century Jewish audience and what it means to us here today. Because I believe if I get into that, what I'm going to do, someone here is going to disagree with me. We're non-denominational. We have 28 different backgrounds within this church. We're not all going to agree. So you're going to disagree with me. And then you're going to walk out and it doesn't look good on the youth pastor. So let's not do that. And... But you disagree with me, so you're not going to listen to anything else I say, and then we miss the big picture all over again. So we're not even going to talk about those things. We're going to go through the scripture, and we're going to go through it, sort of how Paul would have intended it to this first century Jewish audience. We'll talk about what it meant to them, what it means to us here today, and we're going to talk about what God is saying to us, because I believe all scripture is God-breathed, that Paul wrote it for a certain time, for a certain audience, but God intended it for all people, and we are all people, so it is intended for us. And we'll unpack it, how it is meant for us today. Sound good? All right, so I don't know if you guys have looked outside. It's actually not raining. I'm surprised too because, yes, let's praise God on that one. It is not raining, which means summer is hopefully almost here. I've never wanted summer so badly in my life, okay? I'm ready to, I'm ready to go to the parks to actually see what the outdoors look like. I'm ready to go hiking with our hiking group here at Grace. I'm ready to go kayaking again. Um, do I have any more like kayakers in here? Or anyone who, yeah, okay. All right, there's a few of us. Or anyone else who likes a boat that doesn't have a motor? Okay, good. I can't afford the ones with motors, so I, I got paddles. So we love kayaking. But I will say, after a while, you get a little bit careless with kayaks. At least I do. Um, last year I had my first incident in a kayak. I was just being dumb, ended up outside of said kayak. Now, the, the problem is, we, we go on kayaking trips like we're backpacking or something. Like, we have our backpack with food and snacks, and we have our water bottle, and just, we take everything we can with us on the kayak because nothing is ever going to go wrong. Um, so I'm outside of the kayak, my kayak is flipped over, and I'm looking around and my stuff is just everywhere. <laughs> so like I eventually swim around, get everything wrangled up, get it, my kayak flipped back over, everything thrown back up on the kayak, and I begin the process of trying to get myself back into the kayak without flipping it. I eventually do. Get settled in, get set, start looking around, and notice that my oar is about five feet away. <laughs> So I thought, it's not that far. Jessica's on up ahead a little bit. I'm like, I can get to that. So I, I begin trying to paddle myself. <laughs> and I, I'm like kicking and, and swinging and flailing and, and screaming. I'm going nowhere. 
This kayak has not moved an inch, but the wake that I've created has now pushed the oar further away. <laughs> and I'm like, it really doesn't seem like a great idea to get out of my kayak and have to repeat this process. Finally, Jessica comes back over and she helps me out and gets my paddle, brings it to me, and, and we're, we're okay. But I want to talk about that kind of stuck feeling, right? That, that feeling where you're, you're working so hard that you're fighting and you're flailing and you're screaming. You're putting everything you have in you into something, but it seems like you're not moving forward. I think that is something that obviously happens to me while kayaking, but I think it's something that happens to us in life. That so many of us are facing struggles and facing problems and facing situations that no matter how much we paddle, no matter how much we fight, or no matter how much we work, we don't seem to move forward. I imagine a lot of you in here are familiar with that feeling if you're not going through it currently. But maybe you're facing a, a family crisis. And no matter how much you talk, and no matter how much you love, and no matter how much you pray for them, it just seems to get worse. Or maybe you have a family member who is sick, and no matter how much you visit, no matter how much you hope, no matter how much you pray, they don't seem to be getting any better. Maybe you're struggling with a sin, and, and you've done all the right things. You've put in all the work, and you've been reading your Bible, and you've been coming to church, and you've been praying, and you've been trying you know, to, to get past this, and you've been operating, you've been putting your willpower to its test, but all that happens is you end up feeling worse when you fall back into it. Or maybe you've been trying to grow closer with God, and you've been doing all the right things. You've been in scripture, and you've been praying, and you've been talking, and you've been pleading, but you don't seem to hear anything back. When you're fighting with all you have, and you don't feel like you're moving forward, what do you do? When work doesn't work. Paul's going to be addressing these early Jewish people today, and this is the exact kind of situation they are in. They are the Israelites. They are the God's chosen people from like the beginning of time, from Abraham and forward. They are God's chosen people. Yet when the, new, when the Messiah came, it seems like all the Gentiles are being saved, but God's chosen people are not. And Paul is addressing this issue why is it that there are more Gentiles being saved than there are Jews? Well, we can read and pretty much know it's Jewish the stubbornness. Uh, we're all guilty of that too. But Paul is going to be addressing this topic here in chapter 9. So before I jump in, I want to talk about what Paul is going to be doing through this. It's going to help us understand the text so much better. If you, uh, if you read my blog post this week, we have a blog, blog.gcclive.com. Uh, shameless plug. If you, if you read that, or if you didn't, I'll explain a little bit. Uh, I, I wrote a blog post called, What Does the Father Say About Jesus? And in it, I mentioned these rabbinical teachings. So these, these, the way that the rabbis used to teach are actually very similar to how we teach still today. But the, one of their top methods of teaching was a, a strategy or a method we call stringing pearls. And so what they would do is they would take during their talks, they would string together multiple Old Testament uh, stories or just they would string together, uh, you know, a word or two from an Old Testament story. And their audience, for the most part, would have had almost the entire Bible or the entire Old Testament memorized, or at the very least, they'd have had the entire Torah memorized, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. I know it's impressive, but what else are you going to do without Netflix? Um, 
they, they would, at least by the age of 11, they'd had the entire Torah memorized. So rabbis at this time, instead of repeating the entire passage, they would instead just mention a, a quick phrase. So I, I could do that here if I wanted to. If I wanted to say, I know exactly how God feels about this because he so loved the world. I obviously don't need to repeat the entire verse because you know what I'm talking about. When I say he so loved the world, you know that I'm referencing John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? You know immediately just from the context and from what I said that that's my reference. I don't need to repeat the whole verse. So a lot of the times these rabbinical teachers will teach just like that. And as we read um, in this, Paul references so many Old Testament stories. So almost nothing is exactly how it sounds at face value. If you want to look in the true context, you go back and read in context what Paul is referencing to. Um, and I, I had a screenshot, but I forgot to put it in, sorry. Uh, but it was when I first pulled up uh, Romans 9 on the YouVersion Bible app, in the first five verses, there was about 15 little bubbles. And that, all of those were cross-references to something that Paul was referencing in the Old Testament. So there is a lot of context. You can also look at this and know he was probably talking to Jews when he wrote this. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out because we'll be looking at a lot of Old Testament stuff that Paul is referencing too. So we'll start in Romans 9, uh, verse 1. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. I'm going to pause. Because right here, Paul makes it extremely clear who he's talking to. In this passage, he's talking to his Jewish brothers and sisters who do not know Christ. And what I love here is, is Paul's heart for the lost. If you really break down what he just said, he essentially said that he wishes he were able to give up his own salvation so that they could be saved. That Paul is willing to spend eternity in hell if it meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved. And as I'm reading this, I, I just, what would the world look like today if Christians had the same heart for the lost? What kind of difference could we make if we went out into our county, into our state, into the United States, into the world with the kind of mentality that we love lost people so much that we are willing to give up our own salvation for them. Because if we're willing to spend eternity in hell for someone, there's nothing we won't do for them. What if we loved people like that? I mean, I think now we can see why Paul was okay with his ministry of suffering. Because he was willing to do anything he could to get people to Jesus. Because he knew the thing that mattered more than anything else is that lost people meet Jesus. So my first point in breaking a works-based mentality, a mentality that tells us that if we are good enough, if we work hard enough, then we will get good things. My first